Part 1 of Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Themistocles, Part 1 In the case of Themistocles, his family was too obscure to further his reputation. His father was Neocles, no very conspicuous man at Athens, a Freerian by deem of the tribe Leontis. And on his mother's side, he was an alien, as her epitaph testifies. Abritonon was I, and a woman of Thrace, yet I brought forth the great light of the Greeks, I know, it was Themistocles. Phanias, however, writes that the mother of Themistocles was not a Thracian, but a Carian woman, and that her name was not Abritonon, but Euterpe. And Yanthus actually adds the name of her city in Caria, Halicarnassus. It was for the reason given, and because the aliens were wont to frequent Kinosarges, this is a place outside the gates, a gymnasium of Heracles, for he too was not a legitimate god, but had something alien about him, from the fact that his mother was immortal. That Themistocles sought to induce certain well-born youths to go out to Kinosarges and exercise with him. And by his success in this bit of cunning, he is thought to have removed the distinction between aliens and legitimates. However, it is clear that he was connected with the family of the Lycomede, for he caused the chapel shrine at Flea, which belonged to the Lycomede and had been burned by the barbarians, to be restored at his own costs and adorned with frescoes, as Simonides has stated. However lowly his birth, it is agreed on all hands that while yet a boy he was impetuous, by nature sagacious, and by election enterprising and prone to public life. In times of relaxation and leisure, when absolved from his lessons, he would not play nor indulge his ease as the rest of the boys did, but would be found composing and rehearsing to himself mock speeches. These speeches would be in accusation or defense of some boy or other. Wherefore his teacher was wont to say to him, My boy, thou wilt be nothing insignificant but something great of a surety, either for good or evil. Moreover, when he was set to study, those branches which aimed at the formation of character or ministered to any gratification or grace of a liberal sort, he would learn reluctantly and sluggishly. And to all that was sad for the cultivation of sagacity or practical efficiency, he clearly showed an indifference far beyond his years, as though he put his confidence in his natural gifts alone. Thus it came about that, in after life, at entertainment of a so-called liberal and polite nature, when he was taunted by men of reputed culture, he was forced to defend himself rather rudely, saying that tuning the lyre and handling the harp were no accomplishments of his, but rather taking in hand a city that was small and inglorious, and making it glorious and great. And yet, Stesimbratus says that Themistocles was a pupil of Anaxagoras and a disciple of Melissus, the physicist but he is careless in his chronology. It was Pericles, a much younger man than Themistocles, whom Melissus opposed at the siege of Samos, 
and with whom Anaxagoras was intimate. Rather then might one side with those who say that Themistocles was a disciple of Nesiphilus the Friarian, a man who was neither a rhetorician nor one of the so-called physical philosophers, but a cultivator of what was then called Sophia, or wisdom, although it was really nothing more than cleverness in politics and practical sagacity. Nesiphilus received this Sophia and handed it down, as though it were the doctrine of a sect, in unbroken tradition from Solon. His successors blended it with forensic arts, and shifted its application from public affairs to language, and were dubbed sophists. It was this man, then, to whom Themistocles resorted at the very beginning of his public life. But in the first essays of his youth, he was uneven and unstable, since he gave his natural impulses free course, which, without due address and training, rush to violent extremes in the objects of their pursuit, and often degenerate. As he himself in later life confessed, when he said that even the wildest colts made very good horses, if only they got the proper breaking and training. What some story-makers add to this, however, to the effect that his father disinherited him, and his mother took her own life for very grief at her son's ill-fame, this, I think, is false. And in just the opposite vein, there are some who say that his father fondly tried to divert him from public life, pointing out to him old triremes on the seashore, all wrecked and neglected, and intimating that the people treated their leaders in like fashion when these were past service. Speedily, however, as it seems, and while he was still in all the ardor of youth, public affairs led their grasp upon Themistocles, and his impulse to win reputation got strong mastery over him. Wherefore, from the very beginning, in his desire to be first, he boldly encountered the enmity of men who had power and were already first in the city, especially that of Aristides, the son of Lysimachus, who was always his opponent. And yet, it is thought that his enmity with this man had an altogether puerile beginning. They were both lovers of the beautiful Stesilais, a native of Sias, as Ariston the philosopher has recorded, and thenceforward they continued to be rivals in public life also. However, the dissimilarity in their lives and characters is likely to have increased their variance. Aristides was gentle by nature, and a conservative in character. He engaged in public life, not to win favor or reputation, but to secure the best results consistent with safety and righteousness. And so he was compelled, since Themistocles stirred the people up to many novel enterprises and introduced great innovations, to oppose him often and to take a firm stand against his increasing influence. It is sad, indeed, that Themistocles was so carried away by his desire for reputation and such an ambitious lover of great deeds that, though he was still a young man when the battle with the barbarians at Marathon was fought, and the generalship of Miltiades was in everybody's mouth, he was seen thereafter to be wrapped in his own thoughts for the most part, and was sleepless of nights, and refused invitations to his customary drinking parties, and said to those who put wondering questions to him concerning his change of life, that a trophy of Miltiades would not suffer him to sleep. Now, the rest of his countrymen thought that the defeat of the barbarians at Marathon was the end of the war. But Themistocles thought it to be only the beginning of greater contests, 
and for these he anointed himself, as it were, to be the champion of all Hellas, and put his city into training, because, while it was yet afar off, he expected the evil that was to come. And so, in the first place, whereas the Athenians were wont to divide up among themselves the revenue coming from the silver mines at Lorraine, he, and he alone, dared to come before the people with a motion that this division be given up, and that with these monies triremes be constructed for the war against Aegina. This was the fiercest war then troubling Hellas, and the islanders controlled the sea, owing to the number of their ships. Wherefore, all the more easily did Themistocles carry his point. Not by trying to terrify the citizens with dreadful pictures of Darius or the Persians. These were too far away and inspired no very serious fear of their coming. But by making opportune use of the bitter jealousy which they cherished toward Aegina, in order to secure the armament he desired. The result was that with those monies they built a hundred triremes, with which they actually fought at Salamis against Xerxes. And after this, by luring the city on gradually and turning its progress toward the sea, urging that with their infantry they were no match even for their nearest neighbors, but that with the power they could get from their ships they could not only repel the barbarians, but also take the lead in Hellas, he made them, instead of steadfast hoplites, to quote Plato's words, sea-tossed mariners, and brought down upon himself this accusation. Themistocles robbed his fellow citizens of spear and shield, and degraded the people of Athens to the rowing pad and the oar. And this he accomplished in triumph over the public opposition of Miltiades, as Tesimbritus relates. Now, whether by accomplishing this he did injury to the integrity and purity of public life or not, let the philosopher rather investigate. But that the salvation which the Hellenes achieved at that time came from the sea, and that it was those very triremes which restored against the fallen city of Athens, Xerxes himself bore witness, not to speak of other proofs. For though his infantry remained intact, he took to flight after the defeat of his ships, because he thought he was not a match for the Hellenes, and he left Mardonius behind, as it seems to me, rather to obstruct their pursuit than to subdue them. Some say that Themistocles was an eager money-maker because of his liberality, for since he was fond of entertaining and lavished money splendidly on his guests, he required a generous budget. Others, on the contrary, denounce his great stinginess and parsimony, claiming that he used to sell the very food sent into him as a gift. When Philidus, the horse-breeder, was asked by him for a colt and would not give it, Themistocles threatened speedily to make his house a wooden horse, thereby darkly intimating that he would stir up accusations against him in his own family, and lawsuits between the men and those of his own household. In his ambition he surpassed all men. For instance, while he was still young and obscure, he prevailed upon Epicles of Hermione, a harpist who was eagerly sought after by the Athenians, to practice at his house, because he was ambitious that many should seek out his dwelling and come often to see him. Again, on going to Olympia, he tried to rival Simon in his banquets and booths and other brilliant appointments, so that he displeased the Hellenes. For Simon was young and of a great house, and they thought they must allow him in such extravagances. But Themistocles had not yet become famous, and was thought to be seeking to elevate himself unduly without adequate means, 
and so was charged with ostentation. And still again, as Corrigas, or theatrical manager, he won a victory with tragedies, although even at that early time this contest was conducted with great eagerness and ambition, and set up a tablet commemorating his victory with the following inscription. Themistocles, the Friarian, was Corrigas. Phrynichus was poet. Edimantus was archon. However, he was on good terms with the common folk, partly because he could call offhand the name of every citizen, and partly because he rendered the service of a safe and impartial arbitrator in cases of private obligation and settlement out of court. And so he once said to Simonides of Sias, who had made an improper request from him when he was magistrate, You would not be a good poet if you should sing contrary to the measure, nor I a clever magistrate if I should show favor contrary to the law. And once again he banteringly said to Simonides that it was nonsense for him to abuse the Corinthians, who dwelt in a great and fair city, while he had portrait figures made of himself, who was of such an ugly countenance. And so he grew in power, and pleased the common folk, and finally headed a successful faction, and got Aristides removed by ostracism. At last, when the Mede was descending upon Hellas, and the Athenians were deliberating who should be their general, all the rest, they say, voluntarily renounced their claims to the generalship, so panic-stricken were they at the danger. But Epicides, the son of Euphemides, a popular leader who was powerful in speech, but effeminate in spirit and open to bribes, set out to get the office, and was likely to prevail in the election. So, Themistocles, fearing lest matters should go to utter ruin in case the leadership fell to such a man, bribed and bought off the ambition of Epicides. Praise is given to his treatment of the linguist in the company of those who were sent by the king to demand earth and water as tokens of submission. This interpreter he caused to be arrested, and had him put to death by special decree, because he dared to prostitute the speech of Hellas to barbarian stipulations. Also, to his treatment of Arthemius of Zeleia, on motion of Themistocles, this man was entered on the list of the disfranchised with his children and family, because he brought the gold of the Medes and offered it to the Hellenes. But the greatest of all his achievements was his putting a stop to Hellenic wars, and reconciling Hellenic cities with one another, persuading them to postpone their mutual hatreds because of the foreign war. To which end, they say, Helios the Arcadian most seconded his efforts. On assuming the command, he straightway went to work to embark the citizens on their triremes, and tried to persuade them to leave their city behind them, and go as far as possible away from Hellas, to meet the barbarians by sea, but many opposed this plan, and so he led forth a large army to the Vale of Tempe, along with the Lacedaemonians, in order to make a stand there in defense of Thessaly, which was not yet at that time supposed to be medizing. But soon the army came back from this position, without accomplishing anything. The Thessalians went over to the side of the king, and everything was medizing as far as Boeotia so that at last the Athenians were more kindly disposed to the naval policy of Themistocles, and he was sent with a fleet to Artemisium to watch the Narrows. 
It was at this place that the Hellenes urged Eurybiades and the Lacedaemonians to take the lead. But the Athenians, since in the number of their ships they surpassed all the rest put together, disdained to follow others, a peril which Themistocles at once comprehended. He surrendered his own command to Eurybiades, and tried to mollify the Athenians with the promise that, if they would show themselves brave men in the war, he would induce the Hellenes to yield a willing obedience to them thereafter. Wherefore he is thought to have been the man most instrumental in achieving the salvation of Hellas, and foremost in leading the Athenians up to the high repute of surpassing their foes in valor and their allies in magnanimity. Now Eurybiades, on the arrival of the barbarian armament at Aphete, was terrified at the number of ships that faced him, and, learning that two hundred ships more were sailing around above Seathus to cut off his retreat, desired to proceed by the shortest route down into Hellas, to get into touch with Peloponnesus and encompass his fleet with his infantry forces there, because he thought the power of the king altogether invincible by sea. Therefore the Eubians, fearing lest the Hellenes abandon them to their fate, held secret conference with Themistocles, and sent Pelagon to him with large sums of money. This money he took, as Herodotus relates, and gave to Eurybiades. Meeting with most opposition among his fellow citizens from Architales, who was captain on the seared state galley, and who, because he had no money to pay the wages of his sailors, was eager to sail off home, Themistocles incited his crew all the more against him, so that they made a rush upon him and snatched away his dinner. Then, while Architales was feeling dejected and indignant over this, Themistocles sent him a dinner of bread and meat in a box, at the bottom of which he had put a talent of silver, and bade him dine without delay, and on the morrow satisfy his crew. Otherwise, he said, he would denounce him publicly as the receiver of money from the enemy. At any rate, such is the story of Phanias the Lesbian. The battles which were fought at that time with the ships of the barbarians in the Narrows were not decisive of the main issue, it is true but they were of the greatest service to the Hellenes, in giving them experience, since they were thus taught by actual achievements in the face of danger, that neither multitudes of ships, nor brilliantly decorated figureheads, nor boastful shouts or barbarous battle hymns have any terror for men who know how to come to close quarters and dare to fight there, but that they must despise all such things, rush upon the very persons of their foes, grapple with them, and fight it out to the bitter end. Of this, Pindar seems to have been well aware when he said of the battle of Artemisium, where Athenians' valiant sons sat in Radiance eternal liberty's cornerstone. For verily, the foundation of victory is courage. Artemisium is a part of Eubea, above Hestia, a sea beach stretching away to the north and just about opposite to it lies Olesen, in the territory once subject to Philoctetes. It has a small temple of Artemis, surnamed Procyon, which is surrounded by trees and enclosed by upright slabs of white marble. This stone, when you rub it with your hand, gives off the color and the odor of saffron. On one of these slabs the following elegy was inscribed. Nations of all sorts of men from Asia's boundaries coming, Sons of the Athenians once, here on this arm of the sea, whelmed in a battle of ships, 
and the host of the Medes was destroyed. These are the tokens thereof, built for the maid Artemis. And a place is pointed out on the shore, with sea sand all about it, which supplies from its depths a dark ashen powder, apparently the product of fire, and here they are thought to have burned their wrecks and dead bodies. However, when they learned by messengers from Thermopylae to Artemisium that Leonidas was slain and that Xerxes was master of the pass, they withdrew further down into Hellas, the Athenians bringing up the extreme rear because of their valor, and greatly elated by their achievements. As Themistocles sailed along the coasts, wherever he saw places at which the enemy must necessarily put in for shelter and supplies, he inscribed conspicuous writings on stones, some of which he found to his hand there by chance, and some he himself caused to be set near the inviting anchorages and watering places. In these writings he solemnly enjoined upon the Ionians, if it were possible, to come over to the side of the Athenians, who were their ancestors, and who were risking all in behalf of their freedom. But if they could not do this, to damage the barbarian cause in battle, and bring confusion among them. By this means, he hoped either to fetch the Ionians over to his side, or to confound them by bringing the barbarians into suspicion of them. Although Xerxes had made a raid up through Doris into Phocis, and was burning the cities of the Phocians, the Hellenes gave them no succor. The Athenians, it is true, begged them to go up into Boeotia against the enemy, and make a stand there in defense of Attica, as they themselves had gone up by sea to Artemisium in defense of others. But no one listened to their appeals. All clung fast to the Peloponnesus, and were eager to collect all the forces inside the Isthmus, and were building a rampart across the Isthmus from sea to sea. Then the Athenians were seized alike with rage at this betrayal, and with sullen dejection at their utter isolation. Of fighting alone, with an army of so many myriads, they could not seriously think. And as for the only thing left them to do in their emergency, namely, to give up their city and stick to their ships, most of them were distressed at the thought, saying that they neither wanted victory nor understood what safety could mean if they abandoned to the enemy the shrines of their gods and the sepulchres of their fathers. Then indeed it was that Themistocles, despairing of bringing the multitude over to his views by any human reasonings, set up machinery, as it were, to introduce the gods to them, as a theatrical manager would for a tragedy, and brought to bear upon them signs from heaven and oracles. As a sign from heaven, he took the behavior of the serpent, which is held to have disappeared about that time from the sacred enclosure in the Acropolis. When the priests found that the daily offerings made to it were left whole and untouched, they proclaimed to the multitude, Themistocles putting the story into their mouths, that the goddess had abandoned her city and was showing them their way to the sea. Moreover, with the well-known oracle, he tried again to win the people over to his views, saying that its wooden wall meant nothing else than their fleet, and that the god in this oracle called Salamis divine not dreadful nor cruel, for the very reason that the island would sometime give its name to a great piece of good fortune for the Hellenes. At last his opinion prevailed, and so he introduced a bill providing that the city being trusted for safekeeping to Athena, the patroness of Athens, but that all the men of military age embark on the triremes, after finding for their children, 
wives, and servants such safety as each best could. Upon the passage of this bill, most of the Athenians bestowed their children and wives in Troisen, where the Troisenians very eagerly welcomed them. They actually voted to support them at the public cost, allowing two obols daily to each family, and to permit the boys to pluck off the vintage fruit everywhere, and besides, to hire teachers for them. The bill was introduced by a man whose name was Nicagoras. Since the Athenians had no public monies in hand, it was the Senate of Areopagus, according to Aristotle, which provided each of the men who embarked with eight drachmas, and so was most instrumental in manning the triremes. But Cleodemus represents this too, as the result of an artifice of Themistocles. He says that when the Athenians were going down to the Piraeus, and abandoning their city, the gorgon's head was lost from the image of the goddess. And then Themistocles, pretending to search for it, and ransacking everything, thereby discovered an abundance of money hidden away in the baggage, which had only to be confiscated, and the crews of the ships were well provided with rations and wages. When the entire city was thus putting out to sea, the sight provoked pity in some, and in others astonishment at the hardihood of the step, for they were sending off their families in one direction, while they themselves, unmoved by the lamentations and tears and embraces of their loved ones, were crossing over to the island where the enemy was to be fought. Besides, many who were left behind on account of their great age invited pity also, and much affecting fondness was shown by the tame domestic animals, which ran along with yearning cries of distress by the side of their masters as they embarked. A story is told of one of these, the dog of Xanthippus, the father of Pericles, how he could not endure to be abandoned by his master, and so, sprang into sea, swam across the strait by the side of his master's trireme, and staggered out on Salamis, only to faint and die straight away. They say that the spot which is pointed out to this day as Dog's Mound is his tomb. These were surely great achievements of Themistocles, but there was a greater still to come. When he saw that the citizens yearned for Aristides, and feared lest out of wrath he might join himself to the barbarian and so subvert the cause of Hellas, he had been ostracized before the war in consequence of political defeat at the hands of Themistocles, he introduced a bill providing that those who had been removed for a time be permitted to return home and devote their best powers to the service of Hellas, along with the other citizens. When Eurybiades, who had the command of the fleet on account of the superior claims of Sparta, but who was faint-hearted in time of danger, wished to hoist sail and make for the Isthmus, where the infantry also of the Peloponnesians had been assembled, it was Themistocles who spoke against it, and it was then, they say, that these memorable sayings of his were uttered. When Eurybiades said to him, Themistocles, at the games those who start too soon get a canning. Yes, said Themistocles, but those who lag behind get no crown. And when Eurybiades lifted up his staff as though to smite him, Themistocles said, Smite, but hear me. Then Eurybiades was struck with admiration at his calmness, and bade him speak, and Themistocles tried to bring him back to his own position. But on a certain one saying that a man without a city had no business to advise men who still had cities of their own to abandon and betray them, 
Themistocles addressed his speech with emphasis to him, saying, It is true, thou wretch, that we have left behind us our houses and our city walls, not deeming it meet for the sake of such lifeless things to be in subjection. But we still have a city, the greatest in Hellas, our two hundred triremes, which now are ready to aid you if you choose to be saved by them. But if you go and betray us for the second time, straightway many a Hellene will learn that the Athenians have won for themselves a city that is free and a territory that is far better than the one they cast aside. When Themistocles said this, Eurybiades began to reflect, and was seized with fear, lest the Athenians go away and abandon him. And again, when the Eritrean tried to argue somewhat against him, Indeed, said he, what argument can you make about war, who, like the cuttlefish, have a long pouch in the place where your heart ought to be? End of Themistocles, Part 1